0: Hi, everyone. My name is Simba Kader, and you're listening to the MLOps Weekly Podcast. Today, I'm really excited to be speaking with Yokopo Tagliabue. He's most popular in the MLOps community for his GitHub repository, You Don't Need a Bigger Boat, and a lot of his content about ML at reasonable scale. Most of his career was as a data scientist across a variety of different organizations before he started his company, Tusa, which was Search as a Service. He acted as CTO and took it all the way to acquisition by Covio. Where he was most recently the director of AI. As of now, sounds like he's on to his next thing, which I'm sure he'll be sharing more about soon. Jacopo, it's so great to have you on the show today. Thanks so much for having me, and thanks for everybody to join us. I'd love to get it from your perspective and your words. What got you into MLOps? What was your journey like to get here?
1: So, the journey to modern MLOps was basically the realization of sucking in the entire tool chain by myself in the old MLOps world when there was no even MLOps as a word, right? So if you remember my story, like I used to be the CTO and founder of a startup in, in Silicon Valley that was doing NLP for e-commerce, which is an interesting case for ML. It's uh, high value, both in terms of business and, you know, like financial outcome, but it's also high volume. And it's something that is very crucial for an e-commerce shop, right? You can't really run an e-commerce shop without recommendation or without intelligent search. So things need to be up all the time and the model needs to produce the outcome that you expect the model to do. So, you know, all the problems that you now see today in monitoring or, you know, reproducibility and so on and so forth. But, of course, part of what we have to tackle in 2017 when we had to build out the entire infrastructure without any of the tool that is now today. So that's what I'm saying. I almost suck at any point in time in any of the parts that comprises a modern data and ML pipeline, the ingestion, transformation, training, serving, monitoring. And uh, last year, I think like last year or something like that, I kind of went back to all the choices that we made building Tuzo during my tenure at Coveo. And we asked, what if we build something like that now with all these tools? What will we keep? And that's what is nothing. And so we built basically a completely different tool chain, a completely different set of tools and capabilities. And then we open source that in the famous you don't need a big at both repo for everybody to use it, which is the idea of this blueprint of an ideal AI company that basically produces backend for models. And the realization that what took people and months five years ago. Now it can take literally one person and days to achieve the same level of capabilities. And so I can be more thrilled to live in this time and age when I don't have to suck anymore and all of
0: the things that I used to suck at before. It's so funny to like look at, I actually have a very similar story to you. I actually built Feature Form at my last company. We we're also doing kind of recommendations as a service more and we we're handling like hundred million MAU. We had something called our data platform we built. But nowadays, it's a feature store. And MLOps wasn't MLOps. It was kind of like, we didn't really have a word for it. It was just like our workflow, I guess. You know, we built everything. Like there was nothing out there. There wasn't really even examples, like at least of DevOps, you could look at like Google and be like, oh, well, that's like the gold standard. I never really felt that we had that. That repo you mentioned, you don't need a bigger boat. Obviously, if you haven't seen it, if you're listening, you haven't seen it, you should go see it. It's awesome. For those who haven't seen it, could you kind of dive into it? Like, what does that stack look like? What did you figure out looking back and kind of doing that analysis?
1: Sure. So I think there's a bunch of things that if you're trying to do an ML up stack nowadays, there's a bunch of things that are somehow fundamental. As in, you know, the things that without those things, you can't even say that you have an ML pipeline, right? And so the first thing for us, I think for everybody is data, because data is in the end of the day, the most important part and where the biggest margin of value is. So, like how you store data, how you query data, how you normalize data, that's a very important part. The second part is training, of course. You know, once you have data, you have to train a model to do whatever you're doing. So, if you're not training, you're not doing ML. That doesn't mean there's no value, but you're just doing maybe deterministic stuff or rule based and so on, which are a different set of problems. And then finally, serving. It may mean different things to different people, depending if you're doing offline inference, online inference, and so on. But at the end of the day, if you train a model, the model stays on your laptop or even on your cloud, it doesn't make any impact on reality. So there must be a way after training for your model to make prediction, again, in different ways. And so you kind of had to figure out at least three basic minimal pieces to call yourself an ML engineer, like, you know, to say that you have a pipeline, you need at least to have three pieces. And so for us, going back to our previous experience, so we replaced the entire EMR Spark S3 querying based that we have with Tuzo with Snowflake. So Snowflake kind of wiped out the entire infrastructure and clunky things that we had to maintain at in this part-time, as NoFlick you know, just gives you this nice thing when you just store all the data you want. You run a SQL query. You really need to know how that is distributed, that is executed. You just get the result back and it's awesome. So that was point number one. Point number two for training, for us was moving from, let's say, clunky script-based approach to Metaflow. So Metaflow is our open source tool. Everybody can use it. It's completely free of charge. It was open source by Netflix and it's now maintained by a company called Outerbounds. And for us, it was a way to enforce good practices in how you structure your training code through a pleasant developer experience. So Metaflow, by being so pleasant to use, kind of invites you to do the right thing and kind of discourage you from doing the wrong thing. So automatically makes your team works a bit better. Now you train, you experiment, and now you run all this fast iteration. So that's point number two. And point number three, which is the one that I feel for us there's still more work to do on the serving side That really depends on the use case. Some of our use cases are relatively simple in the sense that you can do batch prediction. So you don't really need to have the model that you train live in some sense. You can just run prediction against the model while you're still in the batch mode. And then you can store them in DynamoDB and serve them through the cache in real time. So it's very easy, but it's very powerful because now thanks to DynamoDB serverless and so on, you can do that without maintenance. So that's awesome. And then some other models are actually online models meaning that there's a prediction that is made at runtime. And for that, there's a bunch of solutions up there that we explore from the easiest one, say on the SageMaker side, to the more complex one. Now we're working with a company called ExaFunction to do more complex stuff and with other things in between, like Triton, Truseldon, and so on and so forth. So that would be the third pieces. Once you figure out all the three pieces go together, now you can add all the sorts of fancy stuff that you want. And if you go to the bigger bot repo, you're going to see different options for orchestrating this. You're going to see different options for experiment tracking. You're going to see monitoring solution, and so on and so forth. But all of that comes into place once you have the first end-to-end version from raw data to prediction, kind of figure it out. Because if you try to do more complex things until you figure out the first end-to-end thing, you're just going to make your life more complex without like, a necessary big upside.
0: So I want to jump into kind of the explosion of MLOps tooling. One thing you've said, which I totally agree with, is the goal, especially if you're a startup, is simplicity. You don't want all these moving pieces because it's your job to maintain them. So you kind of want to go things that are hard to use wrong, like we just kind of work. And lots of things you mentioned, like Snowflake, wouldn't really call them MLOps companies. Now there's been an explosion of kind of all this MLOps tooling. Well, my first question about it is, it happened about three years ago. It's kind of like, I at least, this new wave of MLOps startups kind of came to be. I mean, you had that problem years before that. And so we kind of had to do our own stuff. What do you think happened? Like, why did it start three years ago?
1: So there's a bunch of things, right? First, I think there's like the base of practitioners that used to run ML, they become much broader and kind of went out from the few companies that already know what they're doing, right? I have friends at fancy companies like, you know, Facebook, Google, and so on and so forth. And nobody ever complained that they cannot put a model in production. Like, none of my friends ever said any of this sentence, right? There's a lot of other problems, but not this one. And then if you go and look in you know, the usual garden report that everybody cites, or most of my LinkedIn feed is about people complaining that 80% of the product or the, or the project don't make into production or something like that. So there must be something that these people figure out that everybody else didn't, right, by definition. And I think the market got to be bigger because a lot of people that are not necessarily at Facebook scale, like, you know, Covey or Tuzo, my company, but are sophisticated enough to now need to run ML for the sake of their business, but they're not the unlimited resources or scale of big tech. And so there's more appetite for tools that automate some of the things that are not my core businesses and I don't want to maintain, but they're still necessary for me to do my job. The more AI companies that are out there, the more practitioners need to focus on AI creating value, not so much on maintaining AI stack. And I think that's a huge shift in demand in that Samsung sense. On the supply side, we live in, especially in the valley, through a cycle of excitement and disillusion in many things. And I think there's been a lot of excitement in the VC market for ML and data and data companies in the last couple of years. We've seen you know, very good rounds, very good valuations, and so on and so forth. So obviously, the field is very optimistic about the fact that this market is going to get bigger and bigger. And so also on the supply side, there has been a disproportionate amount of money at disposal for people that wanted to build companies and they wanted to solve this problem. So I guess these two things together kind of conspire to create this perfect wave When now there's like a million tools for ML, ML Ops, Data Ops, and so on and so forth. It makes it a very interesting time to be
0: in this space. How do you think that will evolve? As in, maybe one specific question. There's a lot of companies that aim to be kind of best-in-class categories, like solutions. There are companies that aim to be kind of full-stack ML Ops. There are a lot of people in the middle it feels like there are some established categories like feature stores. There's a lot of companies that feature stores, of companies in monitoring. And then there's new companies that kind of almost evade categories. You can't even really clump them into something, just different takes. What do you think the future looks like? Like, do you think that there will be consolidation to MLog platforms? Do you think it will be kind of a lot of best-in-class tools? That's a very good question. And the answer is, of course, you know, I don't know.
1: Prediction is very hard, especially about the future, like the guy used to say. But the general guess is it seems to be there's a lot of company right now and especially in some, some sectors, a lot of competition and not a lot of differentiation. So there are entire sectors in which it's very hard. There's a lot of good tools, but that's, but they're kind of all very similar to each other. So it's very hard for somebody to come in with a fresh perspective. There are people that are trying to inject that fresh perspective, as you said, by kind of expanding into more part of the envelope tool chain. So they're trying to go, maybe they started with this specific problem, but now they're trying to kind of lure you in on the other side. But that's a risk, that's a trade-off you're trying to make, as in, if you're trying to do more than one thing, you may not be the best in class in all of this thing, of course. And then there's an argument to be made that a sophisticated practitioner will just pick and choose the best tool and just orchestrate it himself, which is kind of the lessons of the bigger boat repo, right? Which, again, is already a year old, like, let's remember it's already a year old. But at that moment in time, I felt that the best practitioner will pick and choose from SaaS and open source and put them all together, which doesn't mean it's going to be the same answer in two years from now. I would be very skeptical of the entire end-to-end platforms because I think ML workload superficially looks similar, but then at the end of the day, the devil's in the detail. So there's a lot of difference between between different companies and how they implement that. And sometimes end-to-end platform seems like constraining people to work in one way instead of actually like, you know, being a platform where people can be whatever they want. So I'm not a huge fan of the, hey, this is a tool, you have to do everything from training, testing, deploying, and or whatever. That's, I'm not a huge fan for that like, as a person. But also, I understand I'm on the kind of sophisticated spectrum of the practitioner. So I also have very opinionated view of how things work and a lot of experience, you know, like how to combine different things. That would be my take. So some consolidation, of course. I'm not sure if there's going to be the platform that ends it all. I'm not sure if there's the equivalent of Snowflake, my point, for the entire MLOps thing. Because while all SQL queries look the same to a certain extent, a lot of MLOps companies, actually, when you go under the hood, they look very different.
0: One comment I got from one of our advisors was, as a tech company, as a dev tool company, you sell one of two things. You either sell technology or you sell workflow. If you're selling technology, it's just like, yeah, I can do this thing but everyone else does, but better. Like Snowflake. Like it's SQL, but it's better than all no longer SQL databases because of all these things. And then there's a workflow, which is, hey, what we built, it's not necessarily technically hard, it's just building the right API and choosing the right API. I use Terraform as an example here. Terraform is not easy to build. It's a hard thing to build. But in terms of like what they did that I think was the hardest, was the right API and the right interface to solve the problem at hand. And I think most MLOps companies are more the latter they their workflow problem solvers and they're not technology solvers. I totally agree with that. I think it's a fantastic example with AshCorp
1: success. And I think that that's a really good point. The analogy somehow break down as in infrastructure is a very broad thing. The market is gigantic. Everybody's infrastructure. And again, a lot of infrastructure pieces can tend to be the same across different companies. They they do many different things. ML, unfortunately, is not the same. Like even two people doing classification with deep learning, like let's see even more specific. But then these two things may actually look completely different because the truth of the matter that few people I think, understand outside of ML, is that there's no such a thing as the ML that solves all the problem. Like, ML that works is a very specific thing tuned to a very specific problem in a very specific way. That's the only ML that really realistically works, which means that you need to go deeper into the type of problem. There's a coupling between your ML and your problem, way more than it is between your infrastructure and your problem, which makes it hard to build this all-encompassing platform at the scale of Ashicorp, you know, reached in some sense. Of course, everybody bets that this market is going to grow, and I'm one to bet for sure on that. If the market becomes better, I've invested in as a practitioner to be here because I'm going to be again. Remember, you know, all of this started because I suck at things. So you know, the more people build stuff for me, the better I am. But I think there's a distinction between ML companies generally and infra dev and data companies that somehow gets underestimated even by, you know, VC or like clients or like casual observers of people that never built a model themselves, basically.
0: I totally agree with that. I mean, I come from a recommender system background and the way we did things and the problems that we have are completely different from people of computer vision backgrounds and people who do like tablet data. Also difference between, we work with big enterprise company teams, we work with very small teams and the way they think, the way they problem solve, the way, what they care about is just completely different. And I think that those distinctions are often ignored. Like this computer vision versus not computer vision is a great example. Like the way you do computer vision, the problems to be solved are just so different. Like in modern computer vision, like feature engineering isn't as much of a thing as it used to be. Whereas if you look at like tabular data or like recommender systems, it's all feature engineering. That's where all our value came from. So I think that's something that's really, really crucial. When you think of your repo, Do you create that distinction or do you think about the distinction or do you think that the blueprint you have works across your vision recommender systems, et cetera?
1: The point about the repo is like, hey, this works for us and this is a use case that you can use. There are two use cases there. There's a bunch of other new open source repo, for example, one just for recommendation. There's a bunch of other repos that are kind of tackling different use cases. There are a variation on the original blueprint. Probably they're better for the iteration. But the idea is that the original one ships with two problems. One is a classification problem I give you a sequence of events. You need to tell me if it's going to be a conversion event or not. So imagine this is a shopping example, right? So people are browsing on your website. You need to guess is this person about to buy at the end or not? And that's one problem. And the other problem is actually session, like sequential recommendation. So it's like, you know, the user is interacted with four products. What is likely to like next or, or something like that? The thing that we say in the repo is this is going to likely be the end of your story. MLops, We're not pretending to end it all or to give you on a silver plate, your company. But this is probably a good place to start. Like if you have a problem that resembles these two problems or is actually one of these two problems, the pieces that we put in place for you to start are gonna be okay. Like if you start with this, they're tested, they're okay. You can try them on, they're all open source. We actually open source all the data. So if you want to run the exact project that we did, we open source millions of events of shoppers that you can actually use to get the feeling about these scales at different level of like load, for example. And once you're happy with that, you can make all the changes you want. We think of the repo as the place to start, not the place to end your journey. But at least you start, instead of going on reading towards data science for two months of reading all the articles about MLOps, start with these five tools that work well together, and we show you how they're combined. And then, if you're unhappy with one of them, you can always swap it on and off after you understand the logic. Because again, the important thing is understanding the fundamental functional pieces and how they relate together. And then you can make all the personal choices you want about tool A or tool B, once you understand how
0: the flow works. Is there something you built at Tuso that there isn't like a good solution for yet that you'd have to rebuild? Would all of it be replaced by modern infrastructure?
1: Most of the thing that Tuso was building and Covea as well, in the sense of infra and development, I think they're like 95% solved by tools that you have. You need to use them properly again. Like the other mistake, we don't need to go. So one mistake is thinking that you have to build everything yourself that's false. But their mistake is that, well, now you have tools and tools are going to do your job. That's false. Tools are going to make you more productive. Tools are going to make you achieve more for less input. But you still need to know how to use the tools. Snowflake is an amazing tool, but if you don't have good patterns of how you store the data and how you replay the data, for example, you're going to lose a lot of properties that Snowflake gives you. Metaflow is awesome, but if you don't configure it properly to work with your cloud, it's not going to give you the speed up that you need. So there's still a lot of things that you need to do. And there's a 5%, you know what I mean? That's the 5% that is left for us to do. But at least you don't have to build or maintain the underlying infra layer, which is not what the company is about. My client doesn't care about the fact that I use AWS batch or Snowflake or whatever, whatever I'm using, right? They care about the quality of my recommendation. And so I want to focus my team to focus on the quality of my recommendation, not on the underlying compute, for example, or storage. That's a key point here. But I still have to do the port, yeah. I'm
0: curious. When I um Talk to data science teams. Like most of the time for using pandas or something data frame related or using notebooks, a lot of the work is experimentation and they kind of treat the deployment as a separate issue. Like we're like, cool, I experiment, I do all this stuff. And then finally I switch my hat into deploy mode and I go into deployment. And it seems like, I guess the workflow you've mentioned, or at least the tools you mentioned, like Metaflow and Snowflake and and a lot of those tooling. They're more oriented towards deployment and less experimentation. When do you buy that? Do you feel like there is that distinction?
1: My friend Ville, which is one of the creators of Metaflow, said one of the smartest things that everybody's ever said about MLOps, which is production-ready is a continuum. And of course, that comes from his life at Netflix, which is a very advanced company that understands this very well and makes people productive in that sense. But you need to understand this to be a good ML practitioner. Production-ready is a continuum. Like There's no such a thing as experimental, and production ready. There's a thing of like something that kind of works and it's okay to run on 5% of my traffic or even to just you know, 1% of my traffic for a day, collect manually the results and then iterate and go in there. And then that's something that is like, well, or 30% of our user for an entire week and see how that goes. And then there's a full-fledged thing of like, hey, now let's serve all Netflix, okay? And the good tools are the one that scales automatically to this. And Metaflow is a very good example. Metaflow is good for local experimentation. And with one click, you can deploy on the cloud. And now it runs every day if you want to run it at any scale you want, up to a certain limit. And so it's the same tool that stays with you from the notebook phase to an endpoint running in production. But the crucial aspect here is you have to train your team to think about the constant iteration, not about two separate phases. Because at the end of the day, there's no judge of an ML model like production. People need to test in production. There's a meme when there's the normal distribution and there's people to the left, there's people to the right of the normal distribution. So like the people not super smart and the people that are super smart. And the people to the left and the people to the right are going to say, test in production. And the people in the middle are going to be, you know, the normal people say, no, you have to test on an offline set. And that's all good and well. But at the end of the day, real people test in production. That's a super important thing culturally that needs to happen in your company. And the shorter the time from your idea to production, with all the guardrails and safeguards, of course, that are you know, needed. But the shorter the time, the better ML company you will be. That's the secret to good ML teams. ML teams can do end-to-end from their laptop to production without asking anybody, without asking DevOps, without asking lawyers, without asking security. And that's why they're a good ML team. Because in the time where everybody else is waiting for a DevOps person to deploy infrastructure, they're going to have iterated three times in their model. So that's for me, is a key. I don't buy the distinction between laptop and cloud. It's one thing for me. It just has a set of degree of the amount of guardrails that you need to put in place.
0: I 100% agree. It's something that we think a lot about with our product. I think it's interesting because I actually haven't had anyone say that before. It's something that I've come to believe It's just that these phases need to be combined. Like a lot of people are like, yeah, notebooks are great for experimentation, but they're not great for deployment. And that's true, or I think it's true, but it's not a black and white thing. There needs to be a way to kind of naturally transform what you're doing, the notebook, to deployment. Like in our case, like in the notebook, you can push features and training sets. You make me think of a lot of kind of interesting points. I mean, I love the example of pushing in production. It's something we actually built too. I'm not surprised Netflix does. I mean, Netflix is obviously famous for like Chaos Monkey, which is kind of comes from the same, I guess, philosophy of just like testing some production. We used to do the same thing with our recommender system. Every time we'd have a model that we thought would work, we would hit a button and it would immediately go to 1% of the audience and it would grow and shrink according to things. And we'd always make sure... We always at least had two because we were afraid to like do one and accidentally pigeonhole our recommendations too far. So we had all these things we built. It's not something I've ever seen mentioned. Sometimes I'm like, I can't believe we're only people who built this, but I've never seen Wallace talk about this thing. And it was a key piece of our infrastructure. Yeah. And the last thing I'll add, someone told me once that the greatest adversarial network you will ever find is the Internet. Like if you put a recommender system out, like you can bet that there's a whole like very smart, very sophisticated team of humans decentralizingly trying to break it. Like Google search, like there's always like a billion people in the world trying to like game the system. So you have to deal with like the most smart adversarial network you can create. So when you talk about the degrees of, I guess, ready for prod, is that what you guys do today? Like Do you do things and kind of try it with different Users, does it apply outside of recommender systems? Like, how do you think about that? Or I would love for you to expand on it. You need to map the general principles to know, of
1: course, what your company does. The crucial difference between B2C companies like Netflix and B2B companies like Tuzo, Coveo, or Bloomberg, or whatever, is that you serve different customers that are shops, but you don't control anything that happens between that shop and the final user, the shoppers. So what you build is a recommender system that's going to be used by users but users are not your user. These are your customer user. It's a subtle distinction. So it means that there's a limit to things that you can do, both in the fact that you don't control the final UI, because of course you just provide an API as a SaaS platform and then the company does whatever it wants with it. That's why they pay you. And the second thing is that there's a there's a limit, you know, both contractual, but also more philosophical, like an ethical limit to the number of experiments you can run when there's the decouplement between you and the final and the final shoppers. At some point, you know, you need to take that idea of like production is a continuum. all fine, Ville, thank you very much for the tagline. And then make it work for your own company. But I think in the last, especially in the last couple of years, the MLOps team that I work with at Coveo made incredible, like very significant step forwards toward realizing that vision. And part of that was culture, of course, you know, being good to adopt this new way of adopting stuff, of course. And part of that was MLOPs tool that would make this something that can happen in months and not in years, right? Even at large companies, like a you know, of people, public company, thanks to the metaphor of this word, you can think of making this culture shift at a relatively low price so that people are also more encouraged to see a new way of doing things. You know what I mean? If you can say to people, hey, there's a fantastic new way of doing stuff, but now we have to go to the Mount Everest to achieve this, it's going to take a lot of convincing and a lot of things to go around. But if it's like, hey, but you can just start with this open source stuff. We can start with one model. We don't need to change our entire thing. Let's start with one specific use cases and port it to this new way of doing things. And then we enlarge from that. But you need to be people to get behind you and kind of build it. So again, demand and supply. Like the companies are more ready to have sophisticated tools in place and then supply. Like honestly, there are very good tools now that actually make these choices even a no-brainer compared to, to three years ago.
0: What are you most excited about in MOS?
1: So there's a bunch of things that I think are still open question, and I would love to see more companies kind of tackle this. So two of my topics that I really like, and I'm excited to see what the community is going to do in the next couple of years are, one is testing, which of course, is something that I have also a vested interest in as the co of RECLIST and the CIKM data challenge and so on and so forth. So I believe we really kind of suck at testing recommender system, but more general testing ML systems. And the idea that your ML system is defined by a one metric, MRR, dcg, accuracy, whatever, on an held-out test set is a profoundly misleading kind of idea, right? So the idea that our generalization capabilities, so the idea that we can predict what the model is going to do in the wild with this number is really not doing a good service to the field. Of course, again, I also contributed as an open source and a scholar to this problem, and I will continue to do so with the team but I would love to for this to become one of the central, actually, discussion about ML. As more people doing ML, the barrier to enter gets lower. More models are going to be in production changing the world and changing user behavior. So testing is going to be more important, not less. And I feel there's not enough, nearly not enough discussion. There's still a lot of discussion about models or about GPUs, but not enough discussion on how to test properly your model. So that's topic number one, which I really like to see where the community is going to go. And topic number two, which you mentioned, is experimental platform as you said it's impossible that the people don't talk more about this fact that you have to have two models always competing with each other and so on but the truth of the matter there's no open source or there's not even a real experimental platform out there for people doing ml there's are optimizing tool for people changing the color of a button in a ui there's a tons of options for that but there's no experimental platform like the Stitch Fix or the Netflix of this world that is designed for people sending complex models into production and kind of understanding how this model behaves. So somehow an experimental platform for the backend, not for the UX, I would love for somebody to build a company in that space or at least to build a framework or at least to raise awareness of how important that is for the community. Because building one yourself, and you know it because you did, it's a lot of work. You would totally flow to somebody else if it was possible.
0: Yeah, I wonder if those two things could be combined, actually, like testing and experimentation. It almost feels like there's something there, like some... Uh, anyway, it, that's a very, I, I love that. I think that's very interesting. And for someone listening who's motivated to start a mob's company and thinking about what I did to build, like there's two great ones. I feel we keep talking forever, but I do want to kind of put a bow on this. Maybe last thing, if you have to like kind of give a tweet-leaf takeaway, like almost like a TLDR, for someone who listened to this, or like, this is amazing, I need to go tell my team about this. What should they say?
1: My, my suggestion is always the same is, A, it's a fantastic moment to be machine learning because you don't have to do much. So first point is, you think this gets started with this whole machine learning thing. It's super hard. It's not trivial, I granted you, but it's not nearly as complex as five years ago. So this is a fantastic moment for people to get started. And there's a lot of materials that you can start from, you know, yours, mine, like for example, but there's a tons of other fantastic material. The second point that I would say, the second tweet is. Start with the problem you have and the stack you have now, not the one you wish you had. Like, I think a lot of people get overwhelmed by the idea, oh, wow, but this one scaled when we're Facebook. I'm like, maybe, but you're not Facebook now. And if you're ever going to get there, it's an epic problem. We're thinking about, like, think about your recommender system now or now in six months, now in a year. Don't try to over-engineer this entire thing for a future that may never materialize. I see a lot of people, metaphor is always the same. I see a lot of people in this space that are trying to start playing tennis. And the only thing they consume is Roger Federer training, which is amazing. Roger Federer training is very inspiring, but it doesn't have any bearing with learning how to do a forehand and a backhand right now. Right now, you need a forehand, a backhand, and a volley that are solid. Chances are you're never going to become Roger Federer. And even if you become a professional, there's going to be some year from now in time. Thanks, Roger, for all the amazing things that you did. But for me right now as a tennis player, I just need to eat a hundred forehand and get them on the other side. So focus on that. And then if you're Roger Federer, we'll figure that out when time comes.
0: To expand on that, I bet you if you think, would well, you know what it takes when you're him to do it, that you'd look back in five years if you make it that far and be like, wow, like, can you believe that we thought that was what we were going to do? <laughs> Even if you do get there, you're probably wrong. So why waste your time thinking about that and just like focus on the problem again? I love that. That's, that's an awesome analogy. Um, Jacobo, it's been so great chatting with you. Thanks for hopping on Oh, thanks so much for having me and thanks to everybody for listening in.